This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Bloomin' Brands. Mr. Coley, our friends at Bloomin' Brands have been active in the news the last couple of weeks. They have hired a new chief people officer. They have increased their board of directors, added two women to their board of directors, uh, expanded their national contract with Grubhub to include Flemings in their kind of virtual startup tender shack. Franklin, I think of you when I see the tender shack logo because the little saying is dang good chicken. Sounds like something that would be said at the Coley house. Oh, yeah, that is uttered four times a week. I like the Nashville Hot AF. Joe, do you know what AF stands for? I think we've had this conversation. I think, but can I say it on the air? No. Nashville Hot AF, tender sandwich combo. That looks like a winner right there to me. Yeah, so I I, I guess I missed the memo on that. So when I get back to... Uh, Back to the mothership, I'm going to get some DoorDash and get some Tender Shack and, and check that out. But uh, we love all the Bloomin' Brands. You know, truth be told, Bloomin' Brands was the first partner, corporate partner of Align Public Strategies back in the day. So we have a soft spot in our heart for our friends in Tampa. Love Carabas, love Bonefish, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, Outback. Big fans. And I'm going to get in some Tender Shack when we get back to town. So on that tasty note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, we discuss the aftermath of California's FAST Act and the environment for the labor community as they try to export similar legislation to other states. Can the industry stem the tide? We'll discuss. And proponents of the PRO Act have taken their show on the road, hitting the campaign trail to keep Democratic Senate candidates feet to the fire. Could that strategy backfire? We'll discuss that as well. And another industry CEO has weighed into the law and order public safety debate. But could they be accidentally weighing into a much broader political fight they never saw coming? We'll take a look. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, it's been probably three weeks now that the governor of California on Labor Day, maybe two weeks, signed the California FAST Act. The dust is still settling out there. There are two kind of buckets that we need to dig into. Everybody know, knows what happened and why it happened and so forth. But since we last reported on it, we've got an effort in California to kind of go to the ballot and at a minimum trying to delay uh, enactment of this uh, and ultimately potentially repeal it. And then the second bucket is labor community taking their show on the road and taking a fast act like legislation to numerous other states and what the industry should be doing to react. So let's take piece one. What is going on currently in California and what do you think about it? Yeah. So in California, the industry, it brings a tear to my eye, Joe, to see our little industry step up and, and kind of play with the, the big boys and girls, throw down the gauntlet and and say, you know what, we're we're putting it all in the line here in California. It's, it's not something we, we do very often in, in the restaurant industry, play in the California initiative game going solo. Yeah. And so referendum game, and that is exactly what we're doing. So the way the process works is the governor signed the law on Labor Day, of course, to great fanfare and celebration. And that starts the clock 
and the industry had a relatively short time frame to decide whether or not it, it wanted to challenge it via referendum. So the way the, the clock starts, it's essentially three months or so, and you have that three-month period to file the referendum and then begin gathering the signatures to actually put the referendum on the ballot. So all that had to happen before December 4th. So you're incentivized to move very quickly so that you can get out there and start gathering the, the petition. So Protect Neighborhood Restaurants filed the necessary paperwork to begin gathering 600,000 signatures, which would essentially put this on the ballot. Now, the referendum is drafted, the language, the, the ballot language and the header is drafted by the state. And that's what's kind of different through, from the referendum and the initiative process. Where in the that's exactly process, what I was going to ask you. Good call. That's, that's, I was going to dig into that. So you'd explain that. Good. So, but with the initiative process, you would have to allow the law to go into effect, essentially, and then begin the initiative process. And then you would be running a constitutional amendment. The constitutional amendment would override state statute. And so, you know, this is kind of what the AB5, this is the AB5 route. And so you're allowed to go into wall. Maybe you hang it up in the courts, which is what rideshare folks did until you can run a constitutional amendment, go through the initiative process. The benefit of that is you get to draft the language, you get to make it sound, you know, frame it better for voters. Whereas here, the language is kind of being given to you and it's probably not going to be as, as favorable. So, well, but well, to, say, yeah, to, your, to your point, Franklin, I mean, citizens initiate, hence initiatives and legislatures refer, hence referendums. What, yep. what, what, what was the triggering mechanism that, that forced the state to issue language to this? What, how did that work? Well, the, so we've got to collect the signatures and then once we submit the signatures, then that's when the, the ballot is my understanding of the process. Uh, but then the ballot language is put together. That's my understanding. Subject to clarification later, Joseph. So let's play this out. So that let's that they're going to raise how much money? Well, I don't know, but 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 based on I think the last referendum was, you know, between 10 and 15 million dollars. So let's 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 base it on the last referendum. So that's that's a steep price tag for the industry to come so up they with. They want to they want to get a million signatures so they they can be well in excess of the 600 plus threshold, correct? Ballpark costs about 10 bucks a signature uh, to gather uh, costs about 10 bucks to gather a signature in California, hence the 10 million dollar number. Is that correct? That's some rough math, but but yeah, I I, I think the last only kind yes. of math I do, baby, is rough math, Franklin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think people would probably tell you that it costs more than that, and it's expensive cycle, and blah blah blah. Let, let's call it ten to fifteen million. Let's just guess guess in that that range. Okay, so two things. So in the short term, you know, if they are able to collect the requisite signatures in the given time frame, essentially it delays implementation of this law a couple of years de facto and the cost savings for you know some companies in particular may be well in excess of a 10 million dollar savings so even if it's a two-year delaying tactic from this thing going into effect they, a lot of people will save a lot of money correct potentially yes and part b of that so so let's say it's successful and it qualifies for the ballot you know now those same funders are kind of on the hook to 
go the rest of the way and run a successful initiative campaign, what would those numbers look like? Well, this is where it gets hard to say because it's so dependent on the ballot language, right? So, um, but let's say a minimum of 40 million and in excess of 400 million. So that's a, that's a pretty big range, probably a couple hundred million if we had to guess, but like it's super dependent on, on the ballot language. And we assume our, our friends in the labor community would not sit idly by. They'd be working uh, with their reservoir of resources to push back and, and defeat that initiative, correct? One would assume, but, you know, they that didn't happen in the rideshare, right? Like now the rideshare wasn't arguably was a top union priority, right? So, uh, you know, I... I I don't think they're going to sit idly by how much they spend is a question mark, I think. Yeah. So it should be interesting, but to your point, it is good to see the industry get involved in this process and, 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 you know, it sends a signal, nice segue for second part of this conversation. It sends a signal to probably, you know, proponents in other States that the industry is not going to sit idly by and just kind of, kind of take this. So, um, interesting development. We'll obviously keep close and inform this audience what's going on in California. Franklin, pivoting to part B of that, the exportation of the FAST Act to six or seven other states. You know, how does the industry, what does the industry do differently in those six or seven other states where we think, and, and of course, what are those states where we think this has a potential to go? What, what will we do different in those states than we did in California? Yeah. So first off, within the first four minutes of this passing the California legislature, the SEIU announced that they were going to additional states in an email communication and all over their social media feed. So they're clearly intent on taking this to other states. To your point, Joe, when the rideshare companies push back on AB5 and the beverage companies push back on the state's efforts on beverage taxes, that's stunning momentum outside of the state of California. And I'm, I think everyone's hopeful that the industry's aggressive actions and posture in California are going to stunt some of the momentum out of the state into these other states. That being said, the industry would be foolish not to be preparing for the arrival of some version of the FAST Act in other states. And I think efforts are underway for the industry to, to start getting ahead of this conversation in other states and 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 treat the issue more like the industry did in the California Senate and the California Assembly. And I, I think kind of getting on the ground and making this a constituent driven issue in some of these other states is is important. So, Joseph, tell us about those venues where this could appear. Yeah, I, I would assume it's those, as you like to say, those big blue trifecta states, Washington, Oregon, Illinois, New York, maybe throw a little Connecticut in there, maybe a little, yep. little Little good. Jersey, maybe forget about a little Jersey, good. something like good, that. Good. You know? Little Nevada, Colorado, uh, ooh, Hawaii. Ooh. So th- those ooh, are the blue trifectas with the large Democratic majorities. The next rung for me would be the blue trifecta states in general, New Mexico, Rhode Island, uh, New Jersey, Delaware, Maine. Potential blue trifecta states after Election Day, Joe, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. I'd put those low on the on the. Dude, I, I can see Maryland. I can see Maryland getting after this with with you know. There's some pent up. There's some pent up. Know? Some pent up dreams of labor activists. Yeah, I mean, they had Larry Hogan as a backstop. Great, Massachusetts. 
Massachusetts, you could, you know, I could see a little, little, little pent yeah. up SEIU energy there. Um, I would, but I still think it's going to be the Washington, Oregon's and the Illinois, you know, yeah, it's going to be hard, but let me, let me throw you two, two last two curveballs. Municipalities located within divided government states or soft blue trifectas. So you may have in Michigan, you may end up with divided government. Maybe repubs retain one chamber or both chambers, but you know, and and you got a dim gov. Now the state level preemptions and, and pushbacks are kind of frozen a little bit. Of course, there's some preemptions in the books in Michigan. But the Detroits of the world start going AP because, you know, the Republicans at the state level can't. So you, you've got a scenario where you could have some, you know, you could have some pushback. Let's let's say in Maryland, you know, even if you have a soft blue trifecta that doesn't want to go crazy on this, now you don't have a backstop at the state level for Montgomery County. So there's some state local dynamics there. And then finally, Joe, lame duck sessions, right? Ooh. I mean, let's. Let's let's keep our eye out for our blue trifectas. So that's a lot of potential venues. But I think the the big ones are the ones you listed earlier. Those are the predictable places we're going to have to push back. So, Frank, one last point on this segment. Uh, we belabored this already. But, you know, it seems to me I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, but I just want to kind of revisit it for those that might have missed it. But, you know, for better, or for worse, we were as an industry fairly well set up in California, if you will. Obviously, uh, the, the unions and the SEIU dominate the California legislature, obviously hugely, you know, huge uphill climb politically in California. But as an industry, we had, we have a number of, you know, big brands that are domiciled in California, uh, theoretically political players, you know, but every chain brand has a footprint in California. And as an industry, we were fairly well situated to raise the requisite noise and, and push back on this. Not really the case in a lot of these other states we're talking about, you know, where where we don't have lots of companies domiciled in those states or every brand has a footprint or a corporately owned store, whatever it may be. It seems like we, we're, we're, we're maybe not being as good a and we lost in California, obviously, you know, the politics of it, but we may not be in a, in a, in a, in a situation in the, you know, the Maryland's of the world or, you know, the organs of the world to, to generate enough colossal noise against a, a union onslaught. 100%. We should have won in California. Let me qualify when we should have knocked this legislation down to where it was like an advisory function, or we should have gotten a better outcome in California. And because of our footprint, because of all the things you just stated, in these and because of our trade partners are relatively strong in the state. When you started looking at some of these other states, we're not as well positioned in some of them. And so we're going to have to work double or triple as hard. And by that, I mean, probably spend double or triple the amount of resource to get to where we we were in California. And clearly, we just didn't do a good enough job. And I'm not blaming the trade groups or any brand or I'm just saying collectively as an industry, we didn't do a good enough job and we, we need to we need to remedy that. We learned a lot in California. We learned what we could do well and we, we learned what we cannot do well. And we've got to go into these next states and do better. In my mind had nothing to do with association, had to do with our, our, our engagement levels were just too low. We had to do too small percentage of affected players, franchisees getting into the conversation. And my point being, 
you know, in some of these other states, we have, you know, great associations and a lot of them, it has, but we just have a smaller corporate footprint and this is not focused on independence and so forth. So I don't know, a little nervous about kind of using the exact same strategy in California in a, in a, in a New Jersey or an Illinois or a Washington. So that's what keeps our friends at our trade associations and corporate boardrooms up at night. And uh, as always, we'll be reporting on it going forward. Well, this last week, one of our leading industry players, McDonald's, their CEO, was made some news, a couple of newspapers, notably the Wall Street Journal. And uh, their CEO basically said, you know, hey, we've invested all this money in our headquarters in the city of Chicago, but man, we got some safety concerns in our restaurants. And and we've seen that in other chains in other cities and feeling like the local government leaders should be doing more on the public safety space, Franklin. Um, lots of, we can dig into this, lots of, lots of food for thought in this, but what is your, what is your initial take on that? Yeah. So first off, the industry has earned national headlines in this space. Starbucks first with the, the closing of the stores, And now this week, we have a second round of store closings because of rampant crime. This is the stated reason, right, that Starbucks cannot protect its workers and its customers in these stores. And so they're going to shut them down. Uh, A number of those stores in the first round were also stores where we had active organizing efforts. (laughs) What this last week, McDonald's came out and basically said something similar. The CEO said something similar relative to their Chicago area restaurants that, you know, they're, they're concerned. So this, let's call it crime, urban crime, I I think it's a way maybe we characterize it in the, in the header for this segment, but that conversation is, is an important conversation outside the industry. You know, in the retail space, we, we deal with this issue a lot in the retail theft, in illicit trade and trafficking. It's, you know, this bundle of issues has political energy, though. And, and we see it manifesting in these, you know, you saw it in the Eric Adams campaign for you know, New York City. You're seeing this crime issue manifesting in the political space in a number of different ways. One of the ways is it's becoming a Republican talking point in terms of you know, Democrat mismanaged cities, right? And so, you know, you you see that the state level and at the national level, a lot of Republicans are, oh, Democratic cities are, you know, rife with crime. And, you know, so, you know, those are the political rallies of how this issue is playing out. I do think operators have some very legitimate concerns and particularly in the retail side, but understand that when you're out front leading on this conversation, and I was surprised at how much national media the McDonald's comments this last week got, and I was at a conservative think tank conference last week, Shocker. and I was, I was surprised how it was mentioned, the McDonald's CEO's comments were mentioned from the stage, kind of in that context of Democrat-run states and cities and, and crime and that sort of thing. So I think, Joe, the conversation where we're hoping to have here is that brands need to be cognizant that when they're diving into this space, they may be intentionally or unintentionally kind of affiliating with a series of political arguments that are being made oftentimes from the right side of the aisle. And, you know, you need to understand those political dynamics. Super good counsel. That's that's, that's precisely the point is that, you know, I, I think, you know, 
CEO X or CEO Y thinks they're uh, entering into a public safety conversation and they're unknowingly getting into the middle of a very uh, contentious, you know, everybody sees crime in, in different ways and in, in, in different shades and, and they don't know that they are walking into this thicket and probably best just to, I don't know, save your bullets for another day. Yeah. Organized retail crime to shift off the industry and just using another example, which is organized retail crime and theft, criminal networks, organized criminal networks that are executing these things. That's that's a real concern and a real issue. Um, and and most legislation is designed to directly target these these rings that are operating in human trafficking and drug trafficking and and, and organized retail theft. But, you know, some Democratic members view that as a crackdown in shoplifters. And if you're not smart in the way you draft the legislation to really be targeting the organized criminal networks versus the everyday kind of shoplifter, right? So even with that conversation that I don't want to say it's cut and dry, or but but it's, it's clear that there's a differentiation between the two, you can get into a sticky space pretty quickly with some lawmakers that are that that view what you're trying to do and trying to accomplish as cracking down on you know essentially you know, shoplifters right so anytime you're going into this crime issue you, you just got to be careful about how you're messaging and how you're nuancing so that you're striking the right tone and tenor and and your conversations are productive rather than counterproductive and giving you some brand exposure with some some policymakers. It's it's just a you know example number seven billion of the environment we work in that no matter what you what you say or don't say, how you say it or don't say it, will be used by both sides of the political agenda as a validation or a uh, an assault on their agendas. And so that's just not where brand leaders tell us they want to be. And this public safety one is one is just a, a, a trap. It's a, it's a trap issue. Like you have trap games in sports. This is a trap issue and, and people need to be, be careful when they go down this road. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, a lot happening in the wage space because of the calendar vis-a-vis release of uh, inflation figures, consumer price index adjustments, and a lot of states having their wages tied to that. What's going on in the wage space? Arizona and Florida raise their wage. Maine, Montana, Ohio, South Dakota, Vermont, and Washington will raise their wage soon. Um, So there's a bunch of states, automatic kickups happening now or will happen in the near term. It's a lot of activity. Um, I know that also in Nebraska, it looks like they've got enough signatures. The Secretary of State has qualified their ballot initiative for the November ballot. We've seen red states pass uh, minimum wage ballot initiatives before, but none to 15. What do you think? That would be major if it if it passes on the ballot. So this will be an interesting one to watch. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say rarely Florida, obviously, a couple of years ago, passed a ballot initiative to go to 15. So we've been watching that as well. Franklin, a lot in the uh, paid leave space. Uh, California, you know, G- Governor Newsom's been signing a bunch of bills uh, with, the, with the end of their legislative session, but they expanded their family leave bill kind of bereavement law. Yeah, it includes bereavement now, five days of bereavement in the event of the death of a family. Um, that can be taken within three months of the uh, date of death. 
Um, so we've got a new law in the books in California. And then the state of Colorado uh, just published their final regs, their guidance around their new expanded federal uh, family and medical leave insurance plan. And even though benefits don't kick into 2024, employers got to start doing stuff January 1, 2023, correct? Paying that money. Pay that uh, money. Yep. 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 So it's, it's all happening. It's going into effect in Colorado. Employers have to start complying and, and, and dealing with it. And employees will be able to take leave um, at some point here in the, in the future in 2024. And um, speaking of in the future, uh, the state of Maine, we know this last legislative session commissioned uh, their ledge council to kind of do a big uh, plan for the state. Um, and they did a kind of a fiscal analysis Quite a big price tag for a paid family medical leave plan in, in, for Maine. Well, it is a big price tag, but I don't, I don't think they view it as a big price tag. Two hundred sixty-six million, which you know, that's like that's like a little change under the couch cushion, you know. So you know, that's that depends on how <clears throat> generous the benefits are, but but two hundred sixty-six million. I will say there have been some notable exceptions, but generally these programs have come in kind of under budget and. I think lawmakers, because of that, have been more bullish in, uh, in pursuing paid leave programs. So it'll be interesting to see how lawmakers will treat this in Maine and if, you know, advocacy groups choose to try to put this on the ballot in 2023. And so there's going to be a conversation in Maine around paid leave. It continues to kind of gear up there. I've had the privilege the last few weeks to spend some some quality time in Maine. I can tell you, if you ever travel the back roads of Maine, you know where that $266 million could come. I tell you, the winters up there are cruel on good old asphalt, man. It's a tough, tough, tough road situation in Maine. Uh, so I'm sure every dollar is uh, is, is precious up there. Um, Mr. Cole, we've had a lot of activity uh, around the PRO Act lately, uh, switching to labor policy that, you know, the, the Democrats have been trying to get through the Senate forever. It looks like the advocates have taken their message outside of Washington, D.C. and getting involved in some of these uh, Senate elections. Yeah, file this in the sounds like a terrible idea category. The Workers' Power Coalition is going to pressure Senate Democrats on the PRO Act in the middle of competitive elections in states like Arizona and Georgia and uh, Wisconsin and Florida, i.e. states where Democrats have a chance to actually win on the ballot and hit Democrats on the PRO Act. So I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We'll see how it plays out. I mean, the labor community has gotten more aggressive in kind of pushing candidates in Democratic primaries. We saw this in the presidential primary on their bundle of issues, but we're in a general election now. We're not in you know, a Democrat primary. So uh, we'll be interested to see if this uh, backfires on them in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I just I don't understand it. You, you Vulnerable Democrats in marginal states and purple states, and you're going to wrap this this albatross, the pro act around their neck. You know, Mitch, nothing could probably make Mitch McConnell happier than, than, than reading that news. Um, Mr. Coley, a lot going on in the nomination space. We've talked about Jessica Lumen at Wage Now. We've talked about Carla Gilbride, EOC. Uh, looks like they're heading for committee votes, both of them, this week. That's right. And, you know, Wage Now, where that, that probably is going to get through the process. 
EUC, the Biden administration has not had a majority on the EUC this entire time. The EUC has basically been frozen and hasn't been doing anything. And so this is really important for Biden to get this over the finish line. There's a whole backlog of appointments that have not made it through the process, EUC being the, the prime example. But Biden administration has got to move on this. If they don't start getting this stuff done and Republicans take one or both chambers, it ain't going to get any easier for them to get these appointments through the process. I, I can tell you that. So they have got to get trucking in some of these. if They want to get anything done before the end of the first term. Yeah. Under the same token, you know, the, the NLRB obviously like two weeks ago put out their rule on a joint employer, long awaited rule, but they've got to move quickly too, because with the election looming, you know, there, there are ways that legislative chambers can jam that kind of stuff up, correct? Yeah. Well, and, you know, and then the president goes into reelection. So uh, I will say the NLRB, unfortunately, is moving relatively quickly um, to its its counterparts. But yeah, no, like once you get through this midterm election, now you're in the downhill two years of, of that term and you better pump out those regs quick or they're going to get potentially hung up in Congressional Review Act and and, and other things. So um, you want to get them done and over the finish line quickly. Speaking of the NLRB, staying with them, one note, uh, one case of interest that I, we've been following is this whole issue around buttons on different issues in this particular this case union buttons and the nlrb made a pretty significant ruling on the wearing of union buttons by employees yeah i don't remember the name of the case but it reversed an older case that was a walmart case and so yeah you got to let them now under this board wear those union insignia in the workplace i think it had to do with tesla i think it was tesla was involved in it tesla case that's right yeah so, yeah, that's a, that's a big decision. This has been an issue that employers have grappled with. And so the NLRB is, has pushed the precedents in the direction of protecting workers' action, expanding their protected concerted activity. Franklin, uh, one issue that we talked about a few months, uh, a few years ago, actually, it was the you know, New York State and their sexual harassment prevention model policy. It looks like the state's going back and taking another run at uh, kind of updating that a little bit. You got it. They're soliciting comments right now for potential t- policy changes to that model policy. Um, this is it requires all employers to adopt a prevention policy, annual trainings, da, 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 da. So they're they're updating these rules and employers would be in, and their trade groups would be smart to, to weigh in if we've had issues with complying with this. You know, I think one of the big things was pushing for safe harbors, right, and trying to get existing policies covered in, in the stamp of approval from the state if you'd gone above and beyond. And so, you know, this may be an opportunity to clean some of that up if we didn't get the, t- the type of safe harbors and, and get our policies included in the way we would have liked. And let's pivot to a, a couple of Starbucks-related uh, issues. Uh, I think it was, it was last week, uh, New York City kind of went after him under the city's fairly new just cause law. I don't want to say probably looking into Starbucks is politically motivated, but, who, you know. I don't want to be a cynic, but Franklin, what happened in New York City with the the just cause law? Yes, Starbucks, the city is suing Starbucks that they discharged a union organizer inappropriately. It was actually 
under scheduling in, in conflict with the scheduling law and it essentially is saying that they did not have just cause under this new law to fire them. So, yeah, I, I suspect maybe they got a nudge from from the unions to maybe take a close look at application of the just cause law. I could see a scenario where maybe that that series of events played out. But uh, yeah, New York City's going for another scout, baby. They got Chipotle's in the wall on the uh, the scheduling wall, and and now they're going after another. It's it's it's, it's, like, it's like synchronized swimming, man. Perfectly choreographed. And speaking of Starbucks, um, they made some news uh, a few months ago about some wage and benefit changes for their non-unionized workforce. They did they doubled down this week uh, and ahead, ahead of their annual investor day, announcing yet some more perks for those that have chosen not to participate in the union. Well, Joe, just to be clear, the company has decided to roll this out to non-union stores because it has to bargain with the union if it's going to make those benefits available to those to those union employees. Yes, the new benefit for non-union employees is the company announced new student loan repayment tools and a savings account program for all U.S. employees. I, this is great. This is good. And I, I like that they're rolling this out kind of right after the Biden administration made their announcements around student loans. I, I like the timing of it. I also think this is just a good policy. I think these are typically with most companies underutilized too, right? Uh, but I like that they're making it. I think this is a good benefit. I think there's a number of reasons why a company should look at benefits like this. And I think they probably get less use than companies would anticipate. And they should, quite frankly. They, so anyway, good for Starbucks on this. You know, this is, this is a good benefit and a good direction, I think, for the industry to look to go writ large. And lastly, Franklin, in the labor space, our buddies at Amazon, looks like uh, – a union election is going to go ahead uh, in mid-October at a facility up near Albany. Yeah, this is under essentially a settlement agreement. Voting will be held in person, uh, outdoor tent in the parking lot, counting to begin on October 18th. And we will see what happens. This will be big news for Amazon. It'll be big news for Amazon. So it's uh, so right now, Frank, I can't remember off the top of my head. One one facility has unionized and one facility has failed. Is it a one-one tie right now in the Amazon World or something like that. Either two one or one one. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I think it's I think it's one one. But you know the the the, the JFK eight is is not really affiliated with a, an international. It's a big big storyline there. Gotcha. All right. Well, busy busy couple of weeks here in the legislative regulatory front. Obviously, more coming next week, and we'll be reporting on it. Franklin, uh, you and I have not seen each other in person since Labor Day. And one of the things uh, we haven't commiserated too much on were the uh, Starbucks sip-ins, which I thought was a fairly, fairly creative exercise, shall we say, some some visual politics. Tell the audience what a Starbucks sip-in is. Starbucks sip-in. Well, first off, on Labor Day, we usually don't do protests and actions. We usually do. It's more celebratory than than anything, and it's solidarity building. And so in that tradition, instead of protest, we had sip-ins at these locations, like a sit-in, except it's a sip-in. And so union supporters and labor-affiliated groups, you know, picked Starbucks locations, unionized locations across the country, and went in, they ordered their 
What, what do you get, Joe? You get, I bet you get like a caramel latte, shakalada, covered and dripping with caramel and stuff like that. It is my pet peeve in life to go into one of those places and I got to stand behind somebody who's getting a frothy, foamy, and there are 11 machines involved and it takes 11 minutes. Just give me a coffee. They just have a station off to the side. They just want standard coffee. As much as you like milkshakes, you you need to get over yourself because those are basically milkshakes. Totally different. Milkshakes are totally different. Don't. Okay. I'm putting that aside. I'm putting that aside. But whenever they ordered their fancy latte thing, they, uh, you know, they got a little pro union message on the cup and then they tipped. This is the big thing. They tipped the unionized workers. And so the sip in was a way to demonstrate solidarity and actually, you know, reward the, the union union members with giving them a, a big tip. So they had a national map of all the locations they targeted and it was a number of locations. And guess what that big national map and this little sip in exercise is going to be a test run for Joseph. Yes. Guess what we can expect in, I don't know, one month, four months within the next year. What is that 100 location sit in, sip in mobilization going to morph into? Fast acts? Or a national day of action. Yes. But yes, yes. We've got footholds now of organized labor supporters in groups in, let's call it 50, 60, 100 markets. To date, Workers United has not executed a national mobilization before this, but as contract negotiations, you know, meander, I think we can all expect that we're going to have boots on the ground, fight for 15 style national days of action. And they just had a gigantic test run for that. So, you know, it'll be fun to watch and we'll be here reporting on it. Well, I just uh, got out of a meeting earlier today where, conversation was not the fight for 15 it was the drive for 25 uh so maybe coming soon to a theater near you franklin there's a lot of wind at the sails of, of these guys talk to me about gallup gallup says new poll suggests that unions their highest acceptance level since the early 1960s you got it i got a lot of press i was kind of surprised how much press i got so yeah man they're having a moment can they uh can they, the Bernie bros, they're, they're all on board. They, they love their unions. Can they convert it into something sustainable? TBD, Joe. We'll see how it works out. Well, speaking of Bernie, uh, as we tape this podcast, I am actually in Burlington, Vermont, the ground zero of the burn. So they just scorch marks all over this town. So I'm the home of Bernie as we speak. All right. Well, another week, another pod. We will have another pod for you next week. And until then, stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you then. 